everyone and welcome to episode 20 of Now We're Talking, a podcast about communication skills. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo and I'm a professor of communication and uh, we were talking in the last episode about narratives, what a narrative is and how it does the work it's able to do and in today's episode I want to try to expand on that conversation about narrative. Um, In that episode, I said that narrative was a leadership skill. It is a leadership communication skill. And what I want to talk about today expands on that notion. Um, At its core, though, the suggestion is that an effective leader is able to craft an effective narrative that mobilizes people to action. In other words, a leader, through the art of storytelling, can get other people to act in a particular way. And so here we're not just talking about belief, but we're also talking about action. We have to figure out how um, how a narrative does that, how a narrative can get and can mobilize people to action. Um, that involves making a transition from what we might just consider to be narrative as a basic communication skill to public narrative as a leadership communication skill. So in this episode, I wanna talk a little bit about what a public narrative is and how a public narrative is able to do the work of mobilizing action. So I think in earlier episodes, I've talked a great deal about how communication is a matter of what effect that you have. And uh, that has an emotional resonance to it or emotional value to it. Um, Essentially, and we learned this, I believe I must have talked about the somatic marker hypothesis at some point in one of these episodes, but we learned this from the somatic marker hypothesis in other places. But how you feel about something influences what you think and what you do. There's the idea of um, emotional biases is something that's been proven and shown to be the case by uh, psychologists in this past 50 years. And it's also something that rhetoricians knew 2,000 years ago. Um, so how you feel about something biases the way you reason about it. But it also biases what you do. Or it, bias might, be the right, might not be the right word there. It influences what you do. Um, now, the way you feel about something, and this we learned from the somatic marker hypothesis also, the way you feel about something often has very little to do with the present moment, but is actually a legacy of the emotional lessons we learned a long time ago. So if you imagine for a second that you're a four-year-old and you're playing at a park and a bigger tr- kid comes along and kicks you, you turn around and run over to your parent for help, and then your parent laughs it off. In that moment, you're angry and embarrassed. You might not have those words to describe it, but you're convinced that your parent doesn't care for that moment. You learn a lesson there, and that lesson is that counting on others is a bad idea because looking to others for help leads you to feel embarrassed and angry. So as an adult, fast forward, you're evaluating what to do about a pay cut or something like that. Your past experience makes it unlikely that you're gonna join other workers in a protest because you fear counting on others. Counting on others may make you feel angry or embarrassed. You may even tell yourself that you deserve the pay cuts. 
And here, I don't want to go too far into psychology or psychoanalysis um, or the kinds of things you talk might talk about in therapy, but one has an internal dialogue that is an intrapersonal communication pattern that's influenced by these past experiences. So if you're still in the grips of that fear, when a community organizer comes along and tells you that with a union, you can keep your employer from cutting your pay, you might see that organizer as a threat and you might see her claims as suspect and her proposals as relatively hopeless. That means the exercise of leadership requires engaging people in an emotional conversation. You have to, as the leader, draw on one set of emotions which are grounded in one set of experiences in order to counter another set of emotions which are grounded in a different set of experiences. And at the core of this leadership practice is what I would call an emotional dialogue that is not irrational, but that can offer choices that may have been abandoned because of emotionally biased reasoning processes and can actually mobilize someone to action when they may on the surface appear opposed to some action. The question in communication studies is which emotions inhibit actions and which emotions facilitate actions? Well, um, we know what the action inhibitors are and what the action facilitators are. The action inhibitors are inertia, and inertia is when you just operate by habit, when you're on autopilot. Another, emotion, uh, another action inhibitor is fear, and fear paralyzes us. A threat or a danger that we face um, allows us to rationalize our inaction. So we come up with imaginative excuses to justify our avoidance. Um, so inertia, fear, apathy. Apathy is not caring or without feeling. Apathy, apathy usually describes the feeling that we can do very little about our situation. Um, Self-doubt. Uh, Self-doubt is um, the sort of the opposite of a sense of confidence or a sense of uh, accountability. Um, and then isolation, feeling really alone or feeling totally alone. Um, if you feel any one of those things, if you feel isolation, self-doubt, apathy, fear, inertia, Odds are you won't be inclined to act, or you won't be mobilized to act. On the opposite end of that spectrum are the action, what are called action facilitators. Action facilitators are emotions like urgency. Uh, urgency is um, it's about time and commitment. It captures something that captures our intention and creates a demand to be met right now. Uh, hope, hope is in many ways the opposite of fear. Uh, hope is the belief that things can be made better in the future. It also uh, encapsulates a kind of courage to act, um, comes from hope. Um, anger. Anger is also an action mobilizer. Anger is really the opposite of apathy. Um, anger is based on the difference between what ought to be and what is. So um, we get angry because there's an unjust uh, situation and it not ought it should not be like that um, and then the other two are a kind of sense of confidence and solidarity 
confidence is the sense that you can make a difference. And solidarity is the feeling of belongingness or the feeling that you're connected with other people. Now, what the heck does all this have to do with narrative or story? Well, if you line up the 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 um, the emotions that facilitate action, urgency, hope, anger, confidence, solidarity, a good leader chooses or crafts a narrative that um, that makes an audience feel one of those five emotions. And that kind of feeling can be generated effectively in any one of a number of different ways. But if the leader is able to effectively tap into one of those five emotions, then odds are the audience will be mobilized to act in response to the leader. So, you know, I've been telling you in this podcast, I say it over and over again, we need to stop asking, did you get it? And start asking, what effect have I had? In a leadership context, especially in either professional business circumstances or political circumstances, in order for a leader to be seen as communicating effectively, and by communicating effectively, I mean able to mobilize people to act, able to get people to vote, able to get people to sign petitions, able to get employees to work harder or you know stay later at work, etc. In order to mobilize people to act, a leader is able to craft a narrative that produces one of those five feelings in an audience, urgency, hope, anger, uh, confidence, or, or solidarity. Once those five um, once, those five, one, once one of those five emotions is felt by an audience and it's always felt in response to a narrative, then that audience member will be likely to engage in an action to pursue the kind of end that the leader wants. So um, public narrative, public narrative, and it's you most often see this in politics, but uh, you see it in business also, but Public narrative is the ability to craft a story with a plot, a character, a challenge, or a choice that does the work of getting or or producing one of those five emotions in an audience. That's how you're able to translate values into action through narrative, which is what I was saying before. Now, um, to use the two most obvious examples, um, Barack Obama did this, and he did it in a very particular way. He crafted a public narrative about America that rested on the production of the affective sense of hope. I mean, that was the campaign slogan. His entire campaign rested on producing the feeling of hope in an audience. And I was a member of that audience. I felt hopeful when he was elected after eight years of feeling like, George W. Bush was ruining the country and creating a disaster. Um, But the campaign, so how did he do it is the question. How Obama did it was that he crafted a narrative about himself. So he told his own story over and over again. I'm, uh, you know, the child of uh, two uh, parents of different races. Um, These, this was my journey growing up. He tells it in these two books that he wrote before the campaign even started. He told it over and over on the campaign trail. He told his story, but he told his story and then he nested it in what's called, he nested it in the larger story of who, um, who 
America was. And he claimed that his story was America's story. And so in his early speeches, he makes this seamless shift from I to we. You know, I'm this kind of person. I'm like this. Well, we as America are like that. We are um, this kind of place. And people then effectively felt very close to him and very, very helpful, hopeful about the, the future. Um, that's one way to craft a public narrative. It's a perfectly effective way to do it. We saw Obama did it very well. Um, I think that would have been much harder for Hillary Clinton to craft a public narrative out of a story of herself. Hillary was never comfortable telling her own story. She was never very comfortable narrating her life journey in the same way that Obama was. It's not the only way that one crafts a public narrative. And we've seen a second version of crafting a public narrative in Donald Trump's campaign. That campaign is entirely based on anger. It is 100% a result of Trump's ability to craft a narrative about a public narrative about American um, sort of the the American experience that made people angry. And of course, that narrative is implied, like I said in the last episode, in the slogan, Make America Great Again. Um, it's applied in, implied in the notion that America was once a great country and then got ruined mostly by brown people um, and stupid elites in Washington. And Donald Trump could return America to its rightful great place in a narrative, um, its rightful great place in the narrative. And that narrative is entirely constructed around effectively making people angry. And you see it in the crowds. They're the opposite of Obama's crowds, the tearful and hopeful people lined up in Lincoln Park versus the angry, shouting, um, rageful, pro rageful things that are going on at, in Trump's campaign rallies. So um, it doesn't, that doesn't really matter. What, what matters is that the narrative either narrative mobilized people to act because they tapped into one of the, the five core emotions that do that work. Now, um, the trouble right now, and, um, you know, I, we don't have, I don't, I don't know how much to talk about this, how much I to not talk about it. I mean, I very much want to spend a lot of time talking about this because the trouble right now for progressives on the left in the United States is that they ceded when Obama left office and when Obama stopped campaigning, they essentially ceded the narrative meaning of the American moment to Donald Trump. Even the other Republicans in the Republican Party kind of ceded the narrative to Trump. And now Trump is in complete control of the narrative and everybody on left and right is angry. Everybody senses injustice. Um, there's anger seemingly everywhere. Um, at different kinds of things. And that anger is mobilizing people to action. It's mobilizing people on the left to action just as it's mobilizing people on the right to action. The narrative now on the left is, um, is but the, the problem with the, the narrative on the left that is mobilizing, mobilizing people to action is centered on Trump as a kind of villainous figure. And um, that's also you know, kind of deeply problematic in its own way. It's hard and it has been hard and perhaps Obama is the only one to have been able to do it successfully in, in maybe the last 30 years, it's been very, very hard for people on the left to affectively craft public narratives that mobilize people to action in support of progressive ends. Um, Obama did it through himself. He, he really told his own story and nested it in America's story about who we are. But... 
other others on the left have not been able to do that as successfully and it continues to haunt everything from environmental policy to you know healthcare uh to tax policy uh it's 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 just been a complete failure of the left aside from obama to imagine or articulate a public narrative that taps into one of those five emotions to mobilize people to action toward the ends of those progressive ideals. And instead, you get a series of what I would call analytical arguments based on validity claims. Um, and here's just one example of what I mean. So Trump um, has issues this executive order banning uh, Muslims from six countries, seven countries, whatever. Um, that immigration order is a perfect, um, it's a perfect working out of the narrative he spent months putting in place. And that narrative is that we should be angry at uh, basically Muslims for terrorizing us and our values. And um, now we know it's a, a what I would consider a, a, a truthful validity claim. We know absolutely un unequivocally that Trump's immigration order will actually facilitate or cause more instances of violent extremism, both inside the US and, and abroad. It is the best possible instrument for producing more of that which it seeks to stop, essentially. That's a validity claim. It's an analytical fact. But if you talk to a Trump supporter, they're they're thrilled with the immigration ban, and they will rationalize it in whatever manner they can, and um, they will uh, understand it only in terms of the narrative that they've already accepted and that's already mobilized them to action. That's how bias reasoning works. The same goes for the the debate over transgender bathrooms. Uh, Trump has set, issued another executive order uh, rescinding the protections for students, for transgender students. Um, now, it, it is an undeniable analytical fact that the transgender community is uh, suffers from unfair discrimination and that this tiny executive order from Obama would have made their lives a tiny bit better, but certain Republicans are quote-unquote uncomfortable with the idea of a transgender person using a, using a bathroom. Now, who cares that they are affectively uncomfortable with this idea? Well, they're mobilized to act on it because they're afraid, they're, they're angry at something. They're angry that this group of citizens is allegedly being given special protections or special treatment. And that anger feeds perfectly again into the Trump Trump's narrative that the country is being overrun by um, these dangerous people that are harming us all. Um, but you can't, there, there's, the, what the left tries to do is counter that with an analytical fact or a validity claim or truth claim about how, you know, this is unconstitutional or this doesn't work. But th that that's um, not not what leadership is or what leadership does. Leadership has to have the ability or 
um, political leadership at least, has to have the ability to craft a compelling narrative, a story with characters and a challenger choice and some tension in it, just as I described last week, but that affectively taps into one of the five emotions I just listed so that people are mobilized to action. In its present kind of um, instantiation or its present kind of place, um, the left in the United States, at least for the most part, lacks that narrative. Bernie Sanders has a narrative and he's got a narrative about the oppression of the working class by the wealthy. The conflict in Bernie Sanders' narrative is crystal clear. The conflict is a traditional socialist conflict between the owners of capital and the workers. And that's one reason that Bernie Sanders' campaign was so effective and seemed to come out of nowhere. It's because he had a compelling narrative that tapped into um, one of those five emotions. But again, Sanders, I, I think Sanders was after the emotion of anger. He wanted people to feel angry at the kind of injustices perpetrated by the owners of capital against the, the working class. Um, and that, that can work. It could have worked. It may still work in the coming four or five years for the Democratic Party. We may find the Democratic Party tap more into that narrative because it's the only show in town. And it plays on a climate of, of anger that Trump has already created. Um, regardless, uh, for any kind of, of large-scale action to take place, for people to be mobilized to act, there needs to be a narrative in place that does the work of translating values into emotions for action. Uh, and that, okay, so another thing about um, public narratives um, Public narratives, in the end, have to speak to a we. They construct an us and a them. So uh, they construct, and whether or not that, so that we is never real. It's not, it's not a real we, we. It's a rhetorical fabrication. And it's a rhetorical fabrication so that people can feel a sense of identification, which I said last week has was central to narrative. So that people can feel a sense of identification with other people that is kind of necessary for for being mobilized to action. Uh, Trump, in his inaugural address, did this perfectly. I mean, he was so clear that there was a we. And he says, you know, I'm returning government back to Americans. Of course, all of Trump's language was coded white nationalism. By we, he means white Americans. He does not mean Latinos. He does not mean Muslim Americans. He does not mean trans people. He doesn't mean, you know, he has crafted a clear narrative with an us versus them, a we and a not we. Uh, and all of his language is coded toward the we that he sees himself as part of or he sees himself as connected to. And that we is is the we of, of white, uh, white America. I mean, it's overtly, um, it's an overt character, uh, categorization of a we based on race and not based on class. Now, the, uh, the difference is Bernie Sanders' narrative is also crafted around a we and us versus them. Um, and even if you think back to the Occupy Wall Street movement, we are the 99%. That movement was also crafted on a we versus them. Uh, in Sanders' case, the, the them is it's not along racial lines. It's along, it's, it's along uh, lines about who owns, who's the owner of capital and um, who the wealthiest 1% is in, in the United States. So, um, but it, it, Trump, Sanders, um, Obama, Clinton, it doesn't matter. A public narrative has to have a we in it. It has to have an affective feeling that there's some story of us 
And that story of us has to have a story about where we are right now and where we got to the, where, how we got to the point we are right now. So at the very beginning of this episode, I was talking about, well, you're a little child, that you have this experience on the playground, it teaches you something, you have this emotional resonance. Um, the story, the public narrative, is not a story about the little child. It's a story about how all of us came to be in this moment, and it fills in for us that historical background that led us to the now. So every public narrative is a story of us, which implies a story of them, you know, it implies that there is uh, another them. And that means if it's a story of us, that story of us creates, has in it a challenge or a choice right now for us to make. We're making a choice to be of kind of person A or, or B, policy A or B. Um, and good leadership, um, or effective, I shouldn't say good, it's a really effective leadership gets people to see the challenge or the choice for us as a collective we, and then taps into one of those five emotions that we outlined before. If you do those th those two things as a leader, you'll mobilize people to action. That's how you'll turn a value into emotion into action. Um, okay, so at this point, the last couple of weeks, we've been operating at a fairly broad level, maybe uh, too broad a level, uh, but leadership as a communication art and even storytelling as an individual communication art is in fundamentally important. And those are some general kind of um, ideas to support uh, how one gets to be a better, more effective leader and a more effective storyteller. We'll move on from story next week. Uh, I hope you found this interesting and thanks everyone for listening. Have a good week. Bye.